RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. episode, we are focusing on the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, and to help us to do so, we have Hamid Sharif, AIIB's Managing Director for the Complaints, Resolutions, Evaluation and Integrity Unit, and Jean-Marc Lafreniere, who works with Hamid to lead AIIB's integrity function. We are also joined on the panel to provide an external perspective by Robert Waterson, partner at RPC in the Regulatory and Disputes Team. Welcome to the podcast. So starting with you, Hamid, you've had a long and illustrious career in international financial institutions which focus on development in the Asian region, having worked previously at the Asian Development Bank and the Asia Foundation. What drew you to moving over to the AIIB? Well, first of all, thank you, Alice and Robert. It's, let me congratulate you on your excellent series. We're very pleased to be talking about the AIB and its integrity function. I was at the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, for more than 23 years. I was following the creation of the AIB. The creation of an international financial institution is once in a lifetime opportunity. And so when the opportunity came, it was very difficult to resist that, especially when it meant being part of senior management and being able to see the shaping of the institution and its policies and procedures from day one almost. Thank you, Hamid. And Jean-Marc, as the head of the integrity function at AIIB, you've come from a very different background, that of an investigator for various different Canadian governmental bodies, and prior to that, as an integrity specialist at the Asian Development Bank. How has this helped you to merge into the role that you're now in? Well, I have more than 30 years of experience in both international and governmental organisations in Canada and overseas, and I've been able to bring the experience that I have in forensic audits and investigations as director of forensic audits at Canada's Foreign Affairs Department, at the Office of the Auditor General of Canada, and as a senior integrity specialist at the Asian Development Bank. I've been able to bring this to the AIIB. Hamid, can you give us an overview of the AIIB? You talked about it being very new. When and how did it come into being? And who are its stakeholders? AIB is a young institution. It was born end of 2015, and it commenced its operations in 2016. It's an institution that was born at the time that the international community embraced the Sustainable Development Goals and reached agreement at COP21 on the Paris Agreement on Climate Change that covers adaptation, mitigation, and finance. AIB's creation recognized that there was a huge financing gap in the world for infrastructure development. I should further add that even with AIB's creation, that sizable gap still remains. Therefore, other multilateral development banks extended cooperation to the AIB in establishing its policies and procedures. I was in the Asian Development Bank, and I was part of a small team that made presentations to the AIB secretariat on a variety of subjects, including procurement, environment and social safeguards. So therefore, I should add that AIB is very much part of the multilateral development bank family of banks. The Articles Agreement of AIB, in fact, explicitly refer to the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the Asian Development Bank 
In that, it says that to be a member of AIB, you have to be a member of these two banks. An interesting feature of the AIB is that in our Article 1, where we define the purpose of the bank, it deliberately mentions that AIB will work through partnerships, especially in partnerships with multilateral development banks and bilateral institutions. AIB has actively sought to partner with existing international financial institutions, and such partnerships allow for larger projects to be carried out and risk to be shared among different financiers. In fact, the very first project that the AIB financed was a road project with the Asian Development Bank in Pakistan. So let me emphasize that as part of the MDB family, the AIB is committed to high standards in its governance and policies and procedures. Thank you, Hamid. Jean-Marc, is there anything that you would like to add to this general description? AIB is driven by our core values being lean, clean, and green. Our office is focused on the clean values of the bank in terms of ensuring the highest integrity standards apply to all our projects and our activities. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Robert, the AIIB is one of the newer MDBs, complementing the existing offering, as Hamid said, in the area of Asian development and infrastructure. How is that ensuring that the development needs of this region are met? The AIIB from its inception has made it clear that it builds on the foundations of its progenitor MDBs. I think Hamid has made that point very well. And what that means is that it benefits from the experience of the older MDBs and that it's had an opportunity then to create a new bank along the lines that Jean-Marc has suggested, lean, green and not mean, as you say. And you can see that when you start to look at the way in which the governance structures work, that it clearly benefits from the experience of some of the older so-called Big Five MDBs. Like each MDB, and Jean-Marc has touched on this, its function and its focus is unique. Each MDB exists for a different reason, and broadly, I think we could say that the AIAB exists to improve infrastructure connectivity in Asia. And Robert, from your perspective, how has the timing of the creation of the AIIB influenced how it has created policies and procedures to tackle corruption? Keeping in mind that the sanctions framework in MDBs in general is a project, uh, in the longest case, of only a few decades, which in this world is not very long at all. We're talking about the development of processes and procedures and investigations and how they work in practice, staffing those teams and then them undertaking their work. The AIAB is one of the new MDBs, has nevertheless been able to reflect on the experience of the other MDBs and their embryonic projects in order to formulate its own systems. We'll come on to the process in detail, but it's noteworthy that the policy on prohibited practices, which comes to us from December of 2016, is really right at the beginning of the creation of the MDB itself, and therefore forms part of the building blocks and structure of the MDB, in a way which I think is probably unique. What we take from this is reflected in some of the comments that Hamid has made, and some which were reported in China Daily some time ago, that for the AIIB at an institutional level... It's not afraid to walk away from business in circumstances where it finds that that business does not live up to the expectations and the standards of the AIIB itself. Speaking as a practitioner, it's important for potential borrowers to reflect on that, the way in which the AIIB works, what its expectations are of the people with whom it does business and who it doesn't do business with. This is important not only from the point at which applications for funding are being made, but throughout the ongoing relationship which will exist if those businesses are successful in securing funding. into the detail of the sanctions framework, how does the integrity function fit within the AIB structure? The integrity function is part of the Complaints Resolution Evaluation and Integrity Unit, the CEIU in AIB. This is a unit that was established as an independent unit within AIB and is in fact part of the AIB's board of directors oversight mechanism. The mandate for this mechanism comes actually from the Articles of Agreement of AIB, 
Article 26.4 of the Articles of Agreement basically empowered the board to supervise the management and operation of the bank on a regular basis and to establish an oversight mechanism for that purpose in line with principles of transparency, openness, independence, and accountability. This really makes this quite a unique provision in any MDB charter, because if you look at the equivalent functions, complaints or evaluation or the anti-corruption or integrity function, you'll see that in other MDBs, they often actually constitute separate departments themselves, and the head of integrity in particular does not report to the board. So because the managing director of the CIU reports directly to the board as well as the president, this makes the integrity function at AIP quite unique. The CIU itself has professional investigators for the integrity function who review all allegations of prohibited practices in AIB-funded projects and activities. Consistent with the bank's lean principles, given that the portfolio of the bank is quite small and is in a build-up phase, we obviously don't expect lots of complaints at this juncture, especially since we have a lot of co-finance projects in which under our policy, we can allow the lead co-financing bank to take the lead with respect to integrity matters. So CIU is accordingly leanly staffed, but we do have ample resources and budget to make sure that if we were hit by more complaints than we anticipate, we can very quickly mobilize experts and ramp up at a pretty short notice. So the CIU, of course, has the integrity function and, of course, has a much broader function as part of the oversight mechanism. It deals with complaints or requests for review concerning the bank's own compliance with its environmental and social policies. It also serves as the focal point for evaluation of the bank's projects. But in that function, it really wears very much a learning hat and then seeks to promote learning across the bank through its evaluation activities. And then, of course, under the integrity function, it basically deals with any complaints relating to fraud and corruption under our policy on prohibited practices, which I must say was one of the first policies to be adopted by our board. And this policy defines practices which are sanctionable by AIB. It establishes a sanction regime. The prohibited practices it defines are seven, fraud, corruption, coercion, collusion, obstruction, misuse of resources, and theft. Thank you, Hamid. Jean-Marc, how does the integrity function in particular sit within this framework that Hamid just described? The integrity function is part of the Complaints Resolution Evaluation and Integrity Unit. Now, the unit was established in 2016 as an independent unit within AIB and as part of AIB's oversight mechanism created by the Board of Directors under Article 26 of the bank's articles of agreement. This is a unique provision in any MDB charter. It empowers the board to supervise the management and the operation of the bank on a regular basis and establish an oversight mechanism for that purpose in line with principles of transparency, openness, independence, and accountability. CIU is led by a managing director who reports directly to the board as well as to the president. This makes the integrity function at AIB quite unique, whereby bank is the only MDB where the head of integrity reports directly to the board. CIU is staffed by professional investigators who review allegations of prohibited practices in AIB-funded projects and activities, consistent with the bank's lean principles and the build-up phase of its portfolio, CEIU is leanly staffed, but with ample resources to mobilize experts at short notice if needed. CIU houses the integrity function, but has a much broader role as part of the board-established oversight mechanism. The primary responsibility of CEIU are to selectively assess the quality and results for completed projects of the bank's ongoing and completed investment portfolio, serve as the focal point for external requests or complaints 
regarding compliance with the bank's environmental and social policy under the Project Affected People Mechanisms policy, and finally to investigate project-related fraud and corruption cases under the policy on prohibited practices. Now, one of the first policies adopted by AIB was the anti-corruption policy called the Policy on Prohibited Practices, which defines practices that are sanctionable by AIB and establishes a sanctioned regime. The bank has, under its policy, seven prohibited practices that are defined. And Robert, what are your comments on the system that Jean-Marc has described? The key feature of the system which Jean-Marc has taken us through is that it's a two-tier in structure. This is important for ensuring due process and represents a recognition from the AIB that independence is critical to a fair system. Although it has similarities to structures which exist in other MDBs, such as the World Bank, as Jean-Marc has indicated, there are, of course, unique features. Having a two-tier system is widely recognised as imputing an independence into a structure. Why is that important? The idea with having an independent function is that it can operate without internal or external influence or interference. The idea is that internal pressures cannot lead to action against an organisation which is not merited, and external powers and influence cannot lead to an institution turning a blind eye in circumstances where prohibited practices occur. This is embedded in Clause 5.5 of the Policy of Prohibited Practices, which sets out in some detail, and admirably clearly, if I may say so, how the system operates for the AIIB. Thank you, Robert. And Jean-Marc, how does this integrity function operate in practice? In terms of the structure that has just been explained, can you talk a bit more about the mandate of the integrity function? In fulfilling our mandate to ensure the bank's lean operations, we conduct investigations of suspected prohibited practices. From our investigation, we compile lessons learned and share these with the relevant departments as inputs to improve our processes and to put in place preventative measures. We also conduct staff training on the policy and on other integrity issues in AIAB operations. The integrity function reports periodically to the bank's board of directors and the Audit and Risk Committee on investigations of cases and findings from the investigations. When we conduct investigations, our findings are submitted to the sanctions officer. We'll then review these findings and determine whether prohibited practice was committed. The decision of the sanctions officer may be appealed to the sanctions panel, whose decision shall be final. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Looking in a bit more detail at the AIIB sanctions and debarment framework, Hamid, as a newer MDB, the AIIB has the advantage of seeing the evolution and development of the other MDB's sanctions framework. Has this influenced the creation of the AIIB's framework at all? Definitely. As I said earlier, AIB certainly sees itself as part of the family of multilateral development banks. We've been very fortunate to benefit from their experience And therefore, we have looked at the practice of those banks and built on that practice. So you'll find that in terms of our definitions, while we go beyond the prohibited practices defined in the AMED, the Agreement on Mutual Enforcement of Department Decisions by the five major MDBs, we've added a few more. So we're building on that experience. But in other respects, we very much aligned ourselves with those MDBs We have an independent investigation office like they do. In fact, we've gone a bit more, I would say, try to ensure greater independence by having the head of integrity report directly to the board. We also have a two-step procedure for sanctions. So you have the sanction officer and an appeal from the sanction officer lies to a sanction panel, which is comprised of two independent external In our policy, a very unique feature is that the board has provided that AIB in the spirit of its mandate to partner with other international financial institutions and especially other MDBs. Uh, It provides that, you know, we can follow the integrity policies of the leading bank and allow the leading bank to actually deal with matters of integrity and corruption. 
And this, I think, makes it much more efficient also for the borrower and others because rather than having to complain to more than one bank, they know very clearly that the lead bank has the mandate to deal with all integrity functions. And I think this brings greater efficiency in operations. In addition, we are very much cognizant of the fact that IMED exists, that the five major MDBs have agreed on common principles of investigation, sanctions, and so on. So we have deliberately adopted those. So already the AIB debars more than 1,000 entities on the basis of our unilateral recognition of the sanction lists of the AMED MDBs. And in addition, we have also adopted the sanction guidelines in the sense that they can be a reference point for our sanction officers and the sanction panel. Similarly, some of the other guidelines which the AMED banks have agreed upon, we have referenced them in our directive under the policy as guidance for our own staff. If I could pick up on some of Hamid's comments there and putting this in a global context, What we're seeing described is the way in which anti-fraud, anti-corruption regimes are now starting seriously to be linked together across major MDBs across the world. So Hamid talked about the unilateral application of Ahmed to the AIB, and I'm reminded of his comments to the China Daily about the AIB not being afraid to turn down business. This is not just words. There are thousands of firms and individuals that the AIB and other organisations will not do business with. From the point of view of borrowers and would-be borrowers, this underscores the seriousness of the issue of anti-corruption. There must be an understanding and an acceptance that if you have a problem, the expectation ought to be that you have potentially a problem with all organisations if it goes badly. This should influence the behaviours of the organisation itself and the way it approaches these types of issues internally. They have to come into what is the new world of anti-corruption and anti-bribery in order for them to carry on with their businesses. Because sanctions, and we'll come on in more detail to the different options which are available, but certainly when it comes to debarment, can create an existential crisis for an organisation because of the way in which they cooperate around the world. In the past, IFIs and MDBs may not have investigated. They may not have communicated with each other, and they were less interested in communicating with national authorities. These are now things of the past. This integration and this cooperation is only just going to become more comprehensive as time passes. I note that the AIB has a memorandum of understanding with the World Bank, and I know that the objective is for the AIB to create more such memorandums with other organisations as time goes on. The world has never been so joined up, and this applies to integrity functions and IFIs and MDBs just as much as it does to everything else. The dangers borrowers face, and this includes their directors and potentially contractors, if they do not deal properly with these types of issues, they face what can amount to sanctions which are comprehensive and international in scope. This can have long-lasting or devastating effect on those organisations and those individuals. level. Jean-Marc, how does the life cycle of an investigation actually work? Allegations may come from external parties or internally from staff. CEIU takes steps to ensure that individuals reporting suspected prohibitive practices are provided all reasonable protections, including protection against retaliation. Whistleblowers acting in good faith may remain anonymous or request that their identity be kept confidential. Our unit can use both internal and external resources, including individual consultants and firms to assist in conducting investigations. Entities that are subject to an investigation are provided with due process. For example, they are advised when an investigation is launched. They are asked to cooperate with an investigation by providing information and participating in interviews. Once an investigation is completed, the entity is provided opportunity to provide comments on the investigation findings. And if there's any sanctions that are imposed on the entity, these may be appealed to the bank's sanction panel. And in terms of the sanctions available, what are they and how are they imposed? Possible sanctions include a reprimand, 
debarment, conditional non-debarment, and debarment with conditional release. Other sanctions include, but are not limited to, restitution of funds and the imposition of fines representing reimbursements of the cost associated with investigations and related proceedings. The sanctions officer and the sanctions panel may include the affiliates of a respondent among sanctioned parties. The name and address of any sanctioned respondent and affiliate prohibited practice and the sanction imposed is published on the bank's website and remains posted as long as the sanction is in effect. Now, the sanctions do not replace contractual remedies that the bank may have under its financing agreements, such as accelerating the loan, taking action for breach of covenants, and cancelling the loan. And John Mark, following the investigation's completion, what are the next steps and possible outcomes? Well, AIB sanction structures have been benchmarked against and harmonized with our peer institutions. We've established a two-tier sanctions process to enforce these prohibitions that consists of a sanctions officer and a sanctions panel. The initial decision is to invoke the sanction process is made by CEIU on the basis of its investigation and judgment on the likelihood of successfully sanctioning an entity found to have committed one of the seven prohibited practices. Now, if our unit invokes a sanction procedure, it is the job of the sanctions officer to independently determine whether we've demonstrated on a balance of probabilities that the alleged prohibited practices have been committed and that on that basis to determine the appropriate sanction against the entities that have engaged in prohibited practices. The decision of the sanctions officer may be appealed by a sanctioned party to our sanctioned panel. The panel consists of international experts with experience in dealing with the cases of fraud and corruption. The sanctioned panel is composed of three members. Two of these are appointed externally and one from amongst the bank personnel. Now, decisions of the sanctioned panel are final and cannot be appealed any further. AIB sanctions officer and the sanctioned panel act independently and do not answer to or take instructions from the president, management, the board of directors, representatives from members, or any other entity or individual. Now, if there is evidence that the laws of any member or country may have been violated, the managing director of CIU, in consultation with the general counsel, may recommend to the president that the matter be referred to national authorities in the relevant country. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Robert, in terms of the respondent companies being involved in investigations, how would you say that they should approach these investigations being opened? I think the first point to make is that when you're dealing with investigations of this type, We're not dealing with litigation in the normal sense. That's because of the nature of the way in which the organisation regulates itself through its integrity function. This applies not only to the AIIB, but to other MDBs as well. Broadly speaking, the approach needs to be one founded in cooperation. Fundamentally, the relationship between the business and the AIIB is contractual in nature. And so what you're dealing with is a breach or a potential breach of the relationship which is codified under the contract. At that stage, it's necessary for the organisation to engage fully with the investigators in order for them to contribute to that investigation. There's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, there may be a problem. So there are circumstances where organisations can find themselves with a problem that they didn't expect and didn't plan for and that will need to be corrected. There's no point in simply hiding under a rock and hoping it will all go away. There may not be a problem, in which case it makes sense to engage fully with the process so that this can be evidenced and set out in detail. Either way, the borrower needs to take charge of its internal investigation in order to be able to produce information to the AIB's satisfaction that the issue has been fully reviewed and that it's operating in a transparent way. Why should they do this? The key point, as Jean-Marc has already explained, is that there are a variety of different sanctions options open to the bank, including the final category of other and the initial category of reprimand, both of which could potentially be relatively light touch in circumstances where an organisation has conducted itself well, even in circumstances where a prohibited practice has been found. Obviously, it depends on the nature of the particular prohibited practice itself, But how the organisation deals with it, I would say, is the key factor in establishing how the bank wants to deal with a particular infraction. 
So dealing quickly, sensibly and in a timely manner, whilst also ensuring meeting the relevant time limits for submissions, cooperating with the investigation as it goes along, these are all critical to an organisation protecting itself and also ensuring that if there is a prohibited practice, it receives the lowest possible sanction in order for that organisation to continue its work and develop into the future. It's about self-preservation and the protection for the borrower and its officers. It's also worth taking a wider view, not just looking at an investigation as a one-off, but also trying to put in place protections and structures to prevent that happening in the future. That, in my experience, is something which organisations, IFIs, MDBs and regulators in general, they're all very keen to see, not only that an organisation has dealt with the problem today, but that it's put in place systems and controls to make sure that the problem doesn't happen tomorrow, and that this is a key part of the way in which an organisation should seek to deal with these types of problems. Don't stick your head in the sand, don't treat it as litigation, cooperate, investigate yourselves, and attempt to find a way to resolution as quickly and efficiently as possible. Thank you, Robert. Hamid, do you have any comments on that? I think what Robert said is spot on. I don't think firms today have an option to bury their heads in the sand and ignore integrity issues. I've seen this, frankly, in my last almost 30 years. In the early 90s, when I joined development, the C word couldn't even be mentioned in development organizations. We've come a long way from that. And I think today across the world, there is certainly agreement that corruption is a menace. Corruption undermines institutions. It undermines delivery of development outcomes. And I think you know there is zero tolerance for it. So bidders and firms who deal with IFIs need to be really aware of the fact that corruption will not be tolerated. We appreciate that many of these are large organizations with lots of field officers, and there's always the possibility that overzealous employees may indulge in corruption without knowledge of the headquarters. But I think it's incumbent on headquarters to make sure that the systems and processes are in place to make sure that rogue individuals cannot behave in this way. There has to be continuous attention paid to improving systems so that rogue behavior can be detected and very efficiently dealt with. And I think this is where the need for robust compliance systems, awareness raising amongst employees, and the firm itself demonstrating through action that it has practiced zero tolerance of corruption. And I think these are things which would persuade a sanction officer or a sanction panel on the type of sanction they impose or not impose. And John Mark, in terms of the prohibited practices that the AIIB has, it has more than the other MDBs. I'm thinking in particular of the so-called Big Five. What are the extra prohibited practices that AIIB has and what exactly do they cover? Well, in addition to fraud, corruption, collusion, coercion and obstruction, which are common prohibited practices with other MDBs, AIB also has theft, which is misappropriation of property belonging to another party, and misuse of resources, which is the improper use of the bank's resources carried out either intentionally or through reckless disregard. Now, given the bank's recent launch and relatively small portfolio, it's not surprising that AIB's own completed its first investigation in 2020. Now, this led to a decision in August 2020 to debar six firms and one individual relating to prohibited practices in its corporate procurement processes. The sanctions imposed on these six firms and one individual are the first under the policy on prohibited practices since the bank began operations in 2016. They underscore the bank's commitment to its clean value and deliver a clear message of zero tolerance for corruption in the bank's operations. And in terms of the sanction that was imposed on those prohibited practices, what kinds of prohibited practices were involved in that particular decision? Upon the completion of the investigation, CEIU found collusive practice and fraudulent practice in procurement activities reviewed by the unit involving six companies and one individual. To your knowledge, have any of the other MDBs acted in any way upon your debarment of those companies and the individual? 
we're not part of the cross the bar agreement with the other MDBs. So we unilaterally cross the bar entities from the other MDBs, but they do not reciprocate at this point. We inform them of entities which we have sanctioned. I think it's up to them. Now, in this particular case, the entities that were sanctioned are highly unlikely to do business outside of China. So it's unlikely that I think the AMED MDBs would be particularly concerned about this. But I think you raise a very interesting question that let's suppose AIB or any of the other non AMED international financial institutions were to sanction a significant entity, say in the power sector, in which we know there are very few suppliers, what would happen? I think at that point, it would be significant that in case of AIB, I can say that our policy on prohibited practices is regarded as absolutely first class, in no way less than what other MDBs have. I think through our first case, we have demonstrated that we're absolutely thorough in the way that things are done. We are not trigger happy. We're not here to unfairly go after firms. We give firms proper opportunity to defend themselves. So there's a lot of due process. We have a sanction panel that has, again, first-rate international experts on it with experience of international corruption. Given that, I think it would pose an interesting question for the AMED banks, if they chose to ignore a sanction of a significant entity, given that our shareholders now are pretty much, not exactly, but pretty much the same. Yeah, I guess it's a question of watch this space. It will happen at some stage, but it's an interesting question. I think, if anything, from the point of view of business, it highlights the importance of the point that they can't just assume that if they know one MDB, they know all of them. I mean, there are quite important differences, notwithstanding what we've said about cooperation and the way in which the world is becoming a lot more joined up. One MDB is not the same as another, necessarily. If you've got, I guess, a restriction by geographical scope, then it's less likely that you'll have one organisation which would encounter more than one MDB. But these entities do exist. I think the point is that it's a mistake to assume that you guys are all the same, right? focus, we're of course recording in 2021, and I don't think we can get away from the giant pandemic elephant in the room. So how has COVID impacted both the operation and the priorities of the AIIB? Hamid? Well, I think COVID has had, not surprising, it'd be a huge impact on bank's operations. I think like other international financial institutions, once COVID set in and it became clear that this is a global pandemic, not only with health consequences, but economic consequences for our member countries. Like other international financial institutions, AIB also found itself facing requests for assistance from its member countries. So our board responded very quickly and established a COVID financing facility of $13 billion, of which more than $9 billion has already been committed. As a result of COVID, we saw our operations ramp up very quickly. We had to embrace budget support. That's something that we, frankly, had not anticipated to get into at this stage in our development. We also made loans for health projects, often with co-financiers such as the World Bank and ADB. We also provided support to SMEs and this was normally done through financial intermediaries, financial institutions, countries which had a client base. So we're trying to actually save economic assets so that in the post-COVID situation, countries are able to make a quick economic recovery. It's had a huge impact. But I think in terms of impact on integrity function, we're not faced with this, but on the basis of uh, discussions with our colleagues, if you have a complaint, you cannot travel to the country. So you have to find remote ways of carrying out investigations, which, as you can imagine, is hugely challenging. Often, I think sensibly, people have tried to do that by engaging reliable consultants. But again, there's always the danger when you have third parties involved, the principal agent issue, that how reliable is your agent? Is your agent going to leak information, etc.? So you have to be really very, very careful in appointing investigators. How do you 
collect information. Not all information is digitized. So I think there are enormous problems emerging from the nature of how the investigative function has changed. I think the other huge problem is that a lot of the money which MDBs and other donors have given to countries, and it's certainly not an issue unique to developing countries. We've all read about similar problems in developed countries that when you have procurement being done at record speed, can you really put in place the safeguards to ensure that money doesn't go missing? This is a huge problem even for the developed world. And of course, in the developing world, with institutions which are still very much under development and need of further strengthening, I think the integrity risk really goes up. And I think this is something which IFIs are still grappling with. As more time passes, we can expect that we will get further, perhaps, complaints about corruption and fraud in COVID cases. I think we are at AIB mentally prepared for that. We, of course, try to mitigate that as much as we can in the design of our projects. So we insist absolutely on disclosure of information. We want to know what procurement methods were followed. We want to make sure that proper records are kept. And this is one way to later on track where the money actually went. And I think that's going to provide at least some assurance to our shareholders that at least their money is being properly spent. Thank you, Hamid. Jean-Marc, in terms of your experience of the integrity function and investigations over the pandemic, what has that been like? In response to COVID, the bank put in place the COVID recovery facility. And as part of our work, we've raised awareness amongst bank staff, some of the risks that are inherent in these types of new projects that the bank has been funding. We haven't had an investigation over COVID. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Robert, what are your comments on this? I echo what Hamid said in terms of the difficulty of undertaking investigations during the pandemic. As a practitioner, for some of my cases, it's been almost impossible to get information, particularly when it's abroad, particularly when you're relying on local agents. It's been a big problem. But I think although there's been a period of hiatus, I'm already seeing an acceleration in the number of investigations, reviews and audits which are going on. And this is likely to increase over the coming months and years as we emerge from the pandemic. I think it's very much in the public's mind at the moment, and I think there's a real perception that money has gone missing in relation to funding over COVID. And so there will be a very heavy impetus for all organisations, IFIs, MDBs, and obviously at a national level for governments and government agencies and so on, to ensure that money which has been handed out at record speed is properly accounted for after the event. I suspect Jean-Marc and Hamid's staff are going to be extremely busy over the coming years. Hamid, the AIIB is relatively young in MDB terms. So what developments do you see for the way in which the AIIB will operate in the future? I think AIIB is in a growth stage. I think our portfolio will continue to build up in the coming years. And I think most interestingly, we will go into non-regional countries. We've already started, for example, Egypt is a regional country, but we already have operations there. We just approved recently our first loan to Rwanda, and we're looking at one or two Latin American countries. And I think as we go out, not only will the volume of our lending increase, but I think the breadth in terms of geography will also increase. And that will, of course, pose huge challenges for us as we go into these new countries. I think the need for more robust integrity assessment, more robust mitigation of any integrity risk is going to be very much high on our agenda. In particular, I'd like to say that for the borrowers who we deal with on the sovereign side, the need for them to have robust procurement procedures or capacity to implement procurement in a way that is clean, the need for them to have audit standards and audit capacity, which is reliable, and for them to be able to keep the document trail, which is so essential to investigators. I think these are the sort of things we will have to pay a lot more attention to as we go abroad. For firms which want to do business under AIB finance projects, my big message is compliance programs, compliance awareness is not an option. It's not a luxury. If you're a sizable firm, 
looking for sizable contracts which you want to win under AIB financing, then I think you have to demonstrate that you actually care about the corruption risk and that you have in place systems to counter those. If you don't, and you or a rogue employee carry out a prohibited practice, our sanction officer and sanction panel will take a pretty dim view of any entity which hasn't actually taken any steps to counter the integrity risk. Robert, from the external perspective, how do you see these future challenges impacting on the way that the AIIB works? One of the key takeaway points for us is that the fight against corruption is, of course, always unfinished. That's a maxim which is central to the way in which MDBs and IFIs now operate. In the post-COVID world, we're likely to see an acceleration of investigations and an acceleration of interest in ensuring that organisations have proper anti-corruption mechanisms in place and that it forms part of the way in which they function. Hamid's talked about how, if that's not the case, then the sanctions board is likely to take a dim view. I'd go a step further and say that in the future, it's unlikely that those organisations would get funding in the first place. It's become part of the way in which they have to operate. Another point, which is about the mindset in an organisation, and I think it comes through from what Jean-Marc and Hamid have been saying throughout this episode, is that it's key to take responsibility, both for what the business says it's going to do, but also the way it operates and the way it functions. There may be people at the periphery who don't approach things in the proper way, but the expectation now from national law enforcement and increasingly from the MDBs and IFIs is that the central organisation will take responsibility for the actions of the people who are associated with that organisation, even at the periphery, and will engage seriously and properly with the investigatory bodies in order to deal with the problems as they emerge. Thank you, Robert. Having thought about the future, what are your key takeaways about where we might be looking? Hamid? Twofold. One is digitisation and the potential of e-procurement. And I'm particularly mentioning this because in Busan in 2011, the heads of procurement of MDBs had actually proposed that much more investment should be made in increasing the efficiency of procurement systems in developing countries. And one study, which ADB at that time said that countries in which large parts of government budgets are spent by the government itself, we're talking about very large sums, anywhere from low of 25, 27% to almost 70% of government expenditure being spent by different parts of government. If you were able to increase the efficiency of that, that would mean much more than the money which they get from multilateral government banks or bilateral donors. So there's a huge potential. And the professor of economics who had carried out that study even suggested that some countries would add 1% of their GDP growth simply by more efficient procurement. More efficient procurement necessarily means less corruption because we know that from advanced countries which have moved to electronic procurement, that you do generate efficiencies, you get rid of the human interface, which often leads to opportunities for corruption. So I think that has potential. And I mentioned that because AIB, in its recently approved strategy, adopts digital infrastructure and related technologies as one of the key areas in which it wants to focus. My second thought looking ahead is I agree very much with what Robert said. Soon as the dust settles on COVID, we can expect a lot more investigation, a lot more information on what exactly has gone on with this very rapid procurement across the world. And I think countries will have to think about new rules, procedures for emergencies and pandemics should they occur? What sort of systems do we want to put in place so that this sort of loot, which in some countries is being reported, does not occur again? This is where I hope that countries can work together and MDBs can play a role to protect us all from any future corruption resulting from emergencies and pandemics, which sadly we know from what all the scientists are telling us, whether it's new pandemics or it's new emergencies arising from climate change, I think we have to be ready for them and we have to be ready for the integrity risk associated with them. Thank you, Hamid. And Jean-Marc, what are your key takeaways? Just maybe add one thing. I think with the COVID situation, 
travel restrictions have made it very difficult to conduct investigations. There are some tools to try to overcome these, but I think it really highlights the importance of preventing prohibited practices from occurring in the first place as being really something that we really need to emphasize rather than having to deal with the mess once it's occurred. Thank you very much, Jean-Marc, Hamid and Robert, for your insightful perspectives on the AIOB, its future development and its current processes. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giant series, where we are joined by representatives of the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the New Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes and John McKendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio. Thank you.